Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar.com. In this week's podcast, analyst Kevin Brown highlights dividend opportunities in the real estate sector, Christine Benz discusses some steps to take to prepare for tax day, Russ Kinnell provides insight into recent fund upgrades and downgrades, Brian Colello reviews valuation trends for tech stocks, Dan Lefkowitz compares the pros and cons of dividends versus buybacks, and Greg Warren uncovers practices of successful asset managers. Let's get started. First, analyst Kevin Brown highlights dividend opportunities in the real estate sector. Real estate investment trusts are excellent investments for income-oriented investors, so we want to highlight three companies that are paying above-average dividends. Mall REIT Research combines a double-digit dividend yield with significant discount to our fair value estimate. The company has traded off on fears of retail weakness impacting the company's portfolio, which would force the company to cut their dividend. While they will continue to deal with store closures and hired redevelopment expenses in 2020, we think Mesa Rich's Class A mall portfolio will see solid sales growth and produce enough cash flow to support the current dividend. However, there are significant risks to Mesa Rich's plan, so risk-averse investors should be cautious. Park Hotels and Resorts is another REIT that income-oriented investors should consider, given that the company recently announced a large dividend increase, sending the company's yield to around 9%. We think that parks should see industry-leading NOI growth over the next few years as the company's portfolio is in many markets with below-average supply growth and that management is only midway through a years-long process of improving hotel operations. However, given hotel sensitivity to the overall economy, Park is another higher-risk company that could underperform if leading economic indicators turn negative. Investors looking for a defensive name that has a mid-5% yield should consider healthcare REIT Ventas. While senior housing is going through a downturn due to high supply, the pace of construction starts suggests that supply should fall off just as demand from the baby boomers picks up. Even during the great financial crisis, Ventas maintained and then raised its dividend, so we think they present an investment with upward-trending fundamentals. In summary, there are several REITs that income-oriented investors should keep an eye on for both high dividend payouts and potential capital gains. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Now, Christine Ben shares what tax-related and financial to-dos should be on your radar in February. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski from Morningstar. Tax season is quickly approaching, and it's not too soon to start getting organized for tax time. Morningstar Director of Personal Finance Christine Benz is joining me to share what tax-related and other financial to-dos should be on your radar in February. Christine, thank you for joining us today. Susan, it's great to be here. Before we get into the particular jobs that investors should be tackling in February, let's take a step back and talk about this calendar that you've been, this month-by-month calendar you've been building for several years for investors about how to get some of these important financial tasks off their to-do lists. The idea behind this calendar is that many people sort of have this amorphous goal of getting their financial life in order. And the idea behind using the calendar is that by plotting them and sort of spreading them throughout the year, it's more manageable than having this long to-do list that can be a little bit overwhelming. So that was part of the idea. The other thing um, that I think is worth noting is that some of these tasks naturally lend themselves to certain times of year. So at year end, for example, a lot of us take a look around and see if there are any changes we can make to save on taxes. 
pre-tax time, so in the February, March, early April period, a lot of us are thinking about actually preparing our tax returns. So some times of the year naturally lend themselves to certain financial jobs. So um, we're we're in February, right? And so it is sort of tax time, and I know we, you know, I've started to receive information already too. Many of us have. What are some of the steps we should be taking now to make sure we're prepared? Well, the key thing I think to think about whether you do your taxes on your own or whether you use a tax advisor is just to make sure that you're collecting and organizing those statements as they come in. So this would be your W-2 forms, your 1099 forms. If you're receiving the files digitally, just get a good folder, mark 2019 <laughs> taxes on your computer. If you're receiving paper, 1099s and W-2s, just make, make sure that you're catching them so you're not having to play that game where you're having to retrieve all of those documents just before you start working on your tax return. Return. So I think that's kind of a best practice to just set yourself up. You may even keep a checklist from year to year of, and in some cases, tax advisors provide you mm -hmm. with an organizer that kind of prompts you for various accounts. Like, oh, I usually get a 1099 for this account or this one. And so you can use that to help light the way as well. Um, now, you think it's also a good time to sort of take a look at, kind of look at those 1099s and examine those those W-2s. What, what should we be looking for in those? Right. I think a lot of us tend to get those documents in the door and think, oh, okay, tax file. bill, file. <laughs> The good thing about taking a step back and actually reviewing what's on those forms is that it can provide intelligence about how you're managing your financial life. So your W-2 that you receive from earnings um, from work can show you whether you're fully funding your 401k, for example. It can show you whether you are saving more. If you got a raise last year, have you bumped up your contribution rate? It can show you if you're taking advantage of the Roth or the traditional 401k. Are you taking advantage of of the health savings account if you have a high deductible plan and you have one on offer. So you can glean some things from that uh, W-2 that you receive. With 1099s, and this is especially relevant, um, well, certainly for some workers who are paid and receive uh, tax reporting on their 1099s, but also for people with investments, if you're trying to tighten up your investment program, your 1099 can be a good way to actually think about doing so. So um, a lot of us might have little savings accounts or little pools of savings scattered across multiple accounts. And we might find if we delve into them that we're really not receiving a lot of income from them. That might be your call to tighten that up and consolidate those accounts, maybe qualify yourself for a higher yield than would be available if you only have a little bit of money at a lot of different firms. You can also look at the tax efficiency of your holdings through your 1099. A lot of people pay attention to capital gains distribution season in December, but I think it gets more visceral when you yeah. see that 1099, <laughs> you see how much um, capital gains distributions your, your funds have actually made. So take a look at that as well. The good thing is that um, there are vehicles that nicely control for those mm -hmm. capital gains distributions. They're called index funds. Right. They're called ETFs. Look at whether you might um, make some changes to your portfolio to help make it t more tax efficient on a going forward basis. One of the financial jobs we talked about last month for January is um, investors revisiting their 
asset allocations. And I know that's something that is important in, in February, too, for those of those, those of us who may not have had a chance to take care of it. Right. I'm going to continue to beat this drum, <laughs> mainly because uh, we have enjoyed such a tremendous equity market. And I think this is particularly important for people who are getting close to retirement, looking at their enlarged balances that they've uh, been able to achieve with the help of very large equity weightings. Well, as retirement draws close, you want to make sure that you have enough in safe assets to tide you through an equity market down, downturn to prevent you from having to actually tap those equity assets if they should fall. So take a look at your baseline asset allocation. Take, take a look at your portfolio style box exposure. My guess is a lot of portfolios, if they've been untouched, they're pretty growth heavy. And take a look at that foreign versus U.S. split because I just recently pulled together a compendium of different capital markets forecasts across major financial firms. And if there was a one consensus, and I guess in addition to most of them being kind of pessimistic <laughs> about bonds, bonds prospects, it's that foreign stocks are likely to have better returns over the next decade than U.S. So see if you can't make some tweaks there as well. Well, thanks for giving us a to-do list for February. We appreciate it, Christine. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Next, Russ Kinnell provides insight into recent fund upgrades and downgrades. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Morningstar's analysts provide ratings on about 1,400 mutual funds. Joining me to discuss three funds that recently saw upgrades, as well as two recent downgrades, is Russ Kinnell. He's Morningstar's Director of Manager Research. Russ, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Russ, um, before we get into this uh, analyst rating, let's just talk about how it's different from the star rating, because there's lots of confusion about our different rating systems. That's right. So the star rating is a purely quantitative backward-looking measure of the trailing three, five, and 10-year returns relative to category. The analyst rating is a mix of quantitative and qualitative that's forward-looking, assessing essentially how likely is this particular share class to do relative to its assigned benchmark. Okay. So you and the team recently instituted some changes uh, to the rating system for the analyst ratings. Let's talk about the highlights. We've talked about this before, but just to make sure everyone's up to speed on what's going on with those analyst ratings. That's right. So now it's a mix of quantitative and qualitative. The qualitative side that remains is we still are assessing the parent, people, and process, and on, on a scale of one to five, uh, how, how good they are, how, how, what their competitive advantages are. Uh, but now uh, we're also assessing, in a quantitative way, we're assessing what's the alpha potential, what's the return potential of each category, and then we're looking at each share class's uh, fee level and say, subtracting that uh, from that alpha to then say, what, what is the return potential of this fund so that there are funds that have uh, sh different share classes get different ratings, which I think makes a lot of sense. Obviously, 
a fund charging 100, a share class charging 150 basis points has a harder time of beating its benchmark uh, than one charging 70 basis points. Uh, so it's a, it's a little more complicated, but I think the end result is better. Okay. So we're going to highlight some funds that recently saw changes. Let's start with the good news, the upgrades. Vanguard Developed Markets Index is one that recently went from silver to gold. I'm interested in this one because this is a fund that my husband and I own in our taxable account. So let's talk about what um, drove the ratings change. It sounds like this one did sync up directly with this change to the rating system. Very much so. So this is a fund that's always been a high silver, really, because it's uh, super cheap and it covers a, a huge part of the world. It, it, it's essentially uh, the world minus the U.S. and minus emerging markets, so uh, developed markets, uh, and super cheap. Uh, seven basis points is about as cheap as you can get. Uh, but uh, under our, our new methodology, um, that low cost bumps it up before we had uh, uh, the, the Vanguard index that included emerging markets that was our gold. And we sort of, we were slicing it very thin by right. having this one one notch down. Uh, because of that, uh, this moves it up to gold, obviously very comfortable with it being gold because I think it does very much what you want an index fund to do, provide dependable, diffuse, diverse exposure at a very low cost. So it's a great fund, obviously. Okay, good choice on my part. Well done. <laughs> Let's talk about BlackRock Total Return. This is one that um, I think is interesting because it illustrates that not all share classes of the same fund get the same rating. Some of the share classes are moving up to gold, some are staying at silver. That's right, because uh, again, and you see this particular for, with bond funds because uh, obviously bonds have a more limited return potential, and so you'll see a lot of bond funds have, say, their cheapest share classes will be one level and their, their less cheap will, will be another level because obviously, again, you have a, a fund that might charge 50 basis points here and 100 basis points there, and that's a big difference for a core bond fund. And really, when you think about it, it's an important difference for your savings, reaching your goals, uh, not just a hypothetical issue. So uh, in this case, uh, the BlackRock Fund, uh, we, we think very highly of it. We have a, rated a high on people. And I think really it's all just come together. This is a very uh, deep firm. Uh, and, and Rick Reiter's really uh, done a great job there of uh, bringing together a, a strong team, a good process. Uh, BlackRock is just a massive firm with good technology. And you see a lot of those things uh, coming together. And BlackRock has also been uh, making an effort to lower fees across just about all of their lineups. So that obviously helps in our 2.0 methodology that uh, places a, maybe an even greater emphasis on fees. Okay. Let's look at T. Rowe Price Communications and Technology. This one's also going up to gold, despite some changes behind the scenes. So let's talk about what drove the, the movement from silver up to gold. Yeah, this is one that I think is, is very much driven by our new methodology, uh, because the methodology is really saying, uh, what's attractive relative to the benchmark within this category? And the communications category is a very small category of just a few funds. Many of them are fairly pricey. Um, uh, so on the one hand, you have relatively high fees, but on the other hand, you have uh, fairly high return potential according to our measurement of past return uh, dispersion. And so what that adds up to is even though we've got people at uh, an average because of uh, a manager change there. We have process at above average, parent at high, and the fees are 
quite cheap relative to peers. So you put that all together and the model puts that at, at gold, uh, which is obviously kind of a departure from our, our old uh, methods. But you can see it when you're saying, what are this fund's chances relative to the other funds in its peer group? And you say, well, this is definitely the fund I would want to own. And so the, from that lens, you can understand why you get to gold. Okay. So a related question, though, is that even though this fund is top tier within its category, how, did, how does someone use a fund like this in a portfolio? Uh, I would say carefully okay. because, uh, you know, as you, you imply, I think, uh, no one needs a communications fund, and certainly you wouldn't want a large uh, sum of your assets in such a narrow niche. You probably uh, have exposure to it if you have other diversified funds to begin with. Yeah, a lot of core funds are going to have communications. I think most communication stocks are going to be in the value or blend uh, part of the style box. Uh, so I think almost you'd use it almost like an individual stock. So maybe I want to play communications for whatever reason, but keep it a small holding. I would not go above 5% of my portfolio in, a, in such a narrow niche fund. Okay. Um, let's move to the negative side of the ledger. Talk about um, Goldman Sachs high yield. This is one that we had at neutral. It's moving down to negative. Let's talk about what's going on there. That's right. And in this case, it's not a, a methodology issue. It's, it's that we see fundamental deterioration uh, in a couple of fronts in this case. Uh, we had a manager departure uh, late 2019, uh, but also we've had some uh, disappointing execution over the years. Uh, it, the idea is that it's supposed to be uh, somewhat on the conservative side of its peer group, and yet in a number of down periods, it's actually underperformed because it's had some holdings that didn't uh, work out so well. So on the one hand, you have the, the, the people downgrade, but we also downgraded process because uh, we saw those execution issues. And so all in all, it's not a very appealing package. Okay. Federated Muni and Stock Advantage is another one going from neutral to negative. Let's talk about the situation there. It sounds like some other, some manager issues in, in the game here too. Yeah. So again, we've uh, downgraded people and process and you have a couple, uh, uh, really a lot is in flux at this fund. So the, the basic concept of the fund is that you take uh, equities and munis, put them together in a balanced fund. You get a nice tax-advantaged uh, yield from the, from the immunities, um, but the execution hasn't been great. Uh, you have uh, a manager left, the, the lead manager left the firm uh, not too long ago, and then following that, uh, Federated decided to merge uh, the Clover Value Fund team uh, up in Rochester and have them move to Pittsburgh to work with the Federated uh, value team. Both teams have been underperforming. Both mm -hmm. teams do somewhat different versions of value. Uh, so you, when you see the under construction signs up, yeah. it's usually a good sign to stay away. And, and I think that's the idea in this case is that uh, you don't really know how that's going to, how that merger will work. You don't know if people really stay. Uh, and, and so, you know, really a, a lot to, to, to worry about in, in, a, in a case like this. And, you know, Will the firm, will the people really embrace merging in, in these teams? What will there be changes to the strategies because you're kind of combining these firms that had somewhat the, these groups that had different strategies? Uh, so there's a lot that, that's up in the air, and, and you know overall the, the fund hasn't done all that well. Even if you compare it with uh, the the small subset of of funds that also do this balanced muni equity approach. Okay, Russ, thanks for being here to share your perspective. You're welcome.
Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Now, Brian Colella reviews valuation trends for tech stocks. As of January 30th, technology was about 11% overvalued as measured by the price fair value estimate ratio for the median tech stock. This is one of the highest ratios we've seen since 2007. Maybe we'll get a pullback due to coronavirus. Semis have been an area that we thought were undervalued for almost all of 2019 due to U.S.-China trade wars, but semis have rallied, and now there are only a couple of names trading at reasonable prices, while several more are overvalued. In software, we saw a bit of a pullback in August through October 2019, particularly for names with aggressive valuations, but software has been on a tear the past couple of months as well. Looking across our coverage, Apple, which is always an important tech bellwether, is near all-time highs with strong iPhone and wearable sales, uh, yet we think the stock is a little bit overvalued today. In software, we raised our fair value estimates for Microsoft and ServiceNow after they delivered strong quarters, so we see a modest margin of safety in those names today. Intel's another one to watch if there's a pullback. It was a best idea of ours for all of 2019, and it rallied uh, with a good quarter in Q4. And our best ideas, which have not reported yet this quarter, are still Palo Alto Networks and VMware. Finally, looking at the key trends in technology, all of the secular shifts are still intact. Cloud computing, 5G network buildouts, artificial intelligence, investments and advancements in the car like ADAS and electric vehicles. Uh, coronavirus is the new uh, item that we're looking at, uh, at at the start of or at the end of January and beginning of February. It's something companies are monitoring. Something uh, some companies have provided a wider band of revenue guidance, but there's no clear-cut impact to upcoming earnings at least as of the end of January. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's new podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patek as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Next, Dan Lefkowitz compares the pros and cons of dividends versus buybacks. Hi, I'm Karen Wallace for Morningstar. What's the best way for companies to return profits to shareholders? I want to introduce you to one of my colleagues who spends a lot of time thinking about that question. This is Dan Lefkowitz. He's a strategist in Morningstar's Indexes Group. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Karen. So what are the two main ways that companies share their profits with investors? And what are sort of the pros and cons of each one? Sure. Uh, well, investors love dividends, uh, especially in this day and age of ultra-low interest rates and uh, demographics being what they are, increasing numbers of investors are looking for, um, for income from their investment portfolios. Uh, dividends are straightforward, cash in hand. There's also a total return story to dividends. Dividends enforce discipline on uh, management. They have to deliver that dividend payment. Uh, share buybacks are um, more indirect. Um, now, vis-a-vis -vis dividends, they're more flexible. A company can buy back its own shares when it has cash on hand opportunistically. Um, it's not the kind of straitjacket that the dividend payment is. But the uh, buyback, the share repurchase, um, does increase fractional ownership for remaining shareholders. So they both are uh, ways uh, that a company can um, return cash to shareholders. Share buybacks get criticized for being uh, mistimed, valuation considerations, uh, born of questionable motives. Mm -hmm. uh, they're often perceived as benefiting management at the expense of shareholders. Um, tax consequences to dividends, uh, share buybacks are tax advantage relative to dividends. Mm -hmm. So pros and cons. So so Dan, which is better from a shareholder perspective? So we actually think that um 
dividends versus share buybacks is something of a false dichotomy. Uh, the fact is that many companies these days uh, do both. And market dynamics have really changed over the past few decades. Um, share buybacks have become a lot more prominent um, and have, in fact, eclipsed dividends as a means of returning cash to shareholders. So the fact is that in today's market, share buybacks are really big. Um, we know that the dividend yield on the, uh, the US market is much lower than it used to be. But if you add back in buyback yield, and if you look at total shareholder yield, um, it's more in line with uh, historical averages. And we really think it's useful to think about the total payout of the market. Uh, my colleague Philip Strail in Morningstar Investment Management has done a lot of work on this total payout model, which is a helpful means not just of representing overall market yield, but also valuing the market. So you and your colleagues have spent a lot of time researching this topic and putting together an index. How do you find right. companies that are standouts <laughs> in terms of, um, you know, returning cash through this total shareholder yield. Model. Yeah, so we, we built an index uh, several years ago based on this concept of total shareholder yield. It's called the Morningstar US Dividend and Buyback Index. And very simply, it just selects companies that are returning, shareholder, uh, returning cash to shareholders through dividends, through buybacks, or a combination thereof. Uh, and it weights constituents um, by total payout dollars. So it considers market capitalization as well as uh, dividend and buyback yield. And we find that when you look for buybacks or dividends or a combination, you increase the the you broaden the investment uh, opportunity set. You you broaden the fishing pool. Um, so about 1,200 U.S. companies are eligible for the index. The overall dividend yield is above market. It's attractive from an income perspective. But if you think about uh, total total yield uh, buyback plus dividends, uh, it's even more attractive. Okay, and we have a list of some undervalued components here, and I'll link that in the video notes. Thank you so much for being here. This is really interesting research, Dan. Thanks, Karen. Okay. For Morningstar, I'm Karen Wallace. Thanks for watching. And lastly, Greg Warren uncovers practices of successful asset managers. In our latest Asset Manager Observer, we continue the work we've done in the past several years with our North American Manager Research Group, tapping into their data and insights to form more robust opinions about our own coverage. As part of this process, we've revisited the four traits we believe are essential for success in the business. Differentiation, cost competitive offerings, repeatable investment processes, and adaptable business models. On the differentiation front, we expect to see active asset managers pursuing one or more of the following strategies as we move forward. First, pursue greater diversification by product, asset class, channel, or geography, which should help office offset outflows when a market or strategy is out of favor. Second, develop or buy specialized expertise in a product, asset class, channel, or geography, which if run successfully should lead to less pressure on fees than they would likely see with more generic strategies. A third path involves scaling up their existing business or product offerings, which should offer some relief from fee and margin compression that we envision for the industry over the next five to 10 years. A fourth strategy, vertical integration, is actually more of a threat than a strategy for the uh, asset managers, as pure play asset managers are likely to have distributors like Schwab, Fidelity, and JP Morgan continue to launch their own proprietary funds and squeeze them out of uh, uh, distribution platforms. As for cost competitive offerings, we realize that the overarching trend over the past five to 10 years has been for capital to flow into the cheapest of the cheapest funds. But we don't believe that active funds will charge the same fees as passively managed funds, at least not in the immediate future. Instead, we'll likely see a slow decline in fees every year as active managers look to maintain an appropriate position relative to median price points, ensuring that they stay on retail distribution platforms. 
were repeatable investment processes, we continue to believe that active asset managers that have committed themselves to reliable, repeatable investment processes are more likely to produce strong and consistent performance for their fund shareholders. That said, these processes should be backed up by an experienced, stable investment staff that's well-resourced in terms of personnel and tools, including risk management analysis. With regards to adaptable business models, better cultures and investment processes tend to lead to better and more consistent investment performance, organic growth, and relatively little employee turnover. That said, when growth is harder to come by, active asset managers will need to have adaptable business models in order to remain competitive in a market that continues to evolve around them. As we look at the breadth of our coverage, we expect the largest passive managers, which include wide moat rated BlackRock and Charles Schwab, and active managers that have scale, established brands, solid long-term performance, and reasonable fees, with wide moat rated T. Rowe Price standing out, to be best positioned for the decade ahead. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar.com. We hope you've enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening.